There are people listening to this show. They know someone who has the skills to lead, but yet they choose not to follow them. And my theory is you've got questions about their heart, questions about their motive, questions about their character. You're not debating can they cast vision or can they run a meeting or can they build a product, but you've got questions about their heart. So we think leadership is actually both because you probably also know people with a great heart who you would choose not to follow because they have no skills. They couldn't lead themselves out of a room. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Jed. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share with you a conversation that I had with Mark Miller. Mark formerly served as the Vice President of High Performance Leadership at Chick-fil-A. And I know you know this, Chick-fil-A has become a multi-billion dollar brand that literally, as a chicken company, has become synonymous with the topic and category of leadership development. Now, I've known Mark for years, but we haven't talked in a long time. And it was actually a couple months ago that his son, Justin, who is just an incredibly impact-driven leader in his own right. He runs an organization called Untold that does work to fight and combat the stigma of AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, he gave me a call and he said, Alex, I just wanted to touch base with you. My dad, Mark, uh, is ending his career at Chick-fil-A after 45 years And this is the phrase he used. He said, he's so excited to be starting his second half. And he told me a little bit about the organization that Mark was starting called Lead Every Day. And he said, Alex, I think you and him should connect because I think y'all have a lot in common in terms of mission and purpose and passion for serving leaders. So Mark and I got on the phone and man, this guy is just so energetic, uh, so passionate and so wise as it relates to this topic of developing leaders that develop up other leaders. So I was so excited to have him on the podcast. This conversation is wide ranging and also incredibly practical. We dive in to many concepts that leaders often struggle with and also get some new insight into his upcoming book called Uncommon Greatness. Here's my conversation with Mark Miller. I'm really excited to talk to you about so many things, your your upcoming book that's coming out, the, the second half uh, of your career that you're jumping into right now, uh, but then also just the topic of leadership development in general, because you spent a, a large portion of your career working for an organization that has really come, become synonymous with leadership development in Chick-fil-A. I wanted to start just by asking, is there a story? from your time at Chick-fil-A that you think, man, I think that that moment or that story really has kind of shaped and formed the way that I think about leadership now moving forward. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I think I'll go back to a story early, early, early on. I mean, we're talking over 40 years ago. I was just a kid, Hmm. teenager, and I had joined the corporate staff. I don't know if you or the audience would know any of my backstory. I started in a restaurant as an hourly team member for Chick-fil-A, but I was awful. And so I quit because that was a strategic career move in my mind because (laughs) I thought it would be better to quit than to be fired and then have to explain the rest of my life why I got fired at Chick-fil-A. So I I didn't want to have to do that. So I quit and I went and got another job. And six months later, I got laid off and I thought, Doggone, I need a job. And I said, those were really nice people at Chick-fil-A, but I couldn't work in their restaurant. Maybe I could work at their corporate headquarters, which of course makes no sense in any universe whatsoever. (laughs) But I went into the home office and told the receptionist that I wanted to work in their warehouse. And she told me to have a seat, which I thought that was a good sign. She didn't call security. She didn't throw me out. And so a few minutes later, Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, came out into the lobby and took me into his office to conduct the interview, which that didn't make sense to me. I know it probably doesn't make sense to our listeners. It's like, okay, wait a minute. I'm thinking, he's the CEO. He's the guy that invented the chicken sandwich. Why in the world would he, he be interviewing a kid to work in the warehouse? Well, I later learned it's because he only had 15 employees at that point. 
And if you've only got 15 employees, it makes a little more sense for the head man or the head woman to be conducting those those interviews. Mm -hmm. And I tell people it was a combination of God's grace and lack of discernment on Truett's part. He gave me that job working in the warehouse, which was, that's how I kind of got my foot in the door. Not too long after that, my supervisor had a conversation with me. And, and I'll paraphrase it for you, but this is the story you were looking for. I needed, I needed to give you that context. So I'm, I'm 19 years old, working, just, I had just moved out of the warehouse into a different role. Hmm. Might have been 20 by about three days. I mean, I was a kid. And he said, if you want more influence, you want more impact, and you want more opportunity, there's only one path. And I'm like, really? I said, I'd, I'd like more influence and impact and opportunity. He said, there's only one path. I said, what is it? And he said, lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And, and the way I play that conversation back today is he convinced me that my capacity to grow would determine my capacity to lead. And I made a choice. Now, I was telling this story to a group of young people. They actually asked the question, was there a defining moment in your career? I said, it might have been this one. Hmm. And then somebody in the room was probably, or obviously, I would say, familiar with strength finders. And some of your listeners are, you know, and everybody loves their strengths, right? Who doesn't love? I mean, that was a genius <laughs> marketing idea. We're going to get you to pay us and we'll tell you what you're good at. Well, of course, <laughs> people know what they're good at, but that's okay. And so, again, I think there are 34 of those strengths. And again, someone in your audience may know learner is one of those. So somebody in the audience, after I told that story, they said, yeah, but, but learning's probably easy for you. And I said, well, why would you say that? And they said, well, I bet you're a learner, referencing strength finders. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no. Uh, interestingly enough, it's not in my top five. It's not in my top 10. I don't think it's in my top 25. Mm-hmm. They said, that's odd. I said, well, why is that odd? And they said, because you act like a learner. And I said, well, I made a choice mm-hmm. 44 years ago that if you want more influence, you want more impact, and you want more opportunity, and that's the only way, then I've been trying to live for four decades in that fashion so that I could have more influence, more impact, and more opportunity. And so that changed the course and trajectory of my life. My, I, my parents wish I'd have made that decision much, much earlier because I was an <laughs> awful student. I was an awful student. And again, I don't think they knew what happened. They, th- they thought I was, you know, invaded by an alien or something. And uh, yeah, I, that's the path I jumped on back then and I'm still on it. Well, there's so much embedded in that story that's just so uh, inspiring and so cool. I think one of the things that stands out is it just highlights this reality that I think we've all experienced that like you can be going on a certain trajectory and then you coincide with one person that says something very specific. And I mean, you just said it changed the rest of your life, right? And so is there anything when you look back now, you're in the space of leadership development. So you're constantly coaching, training, developing, teaching people. How do you be that person for other people that can be their trajectory changer, right? That like can coincide with them and do what your supervisor did for you. I'd love to hear you unpack, like, what did your supervisor do in that moment? And maybe how did he deliver it in such a way that you were actually able to receive it, Mark? Yeah, I'm not even sure that that I can reconstruct that. I tell people it's actually not the years, it's the miles, I think, that have maybe blurred my memory just a bit. I think he acknowledged even... He recognized in me, even as a young person, that maybe the idea of increased influence and impact and opportunity would connect and resonate with me. Mm. So he he led with that. Like, might this be something you're interested in? He didn't give me the answer until I said, well, how do you do it? What is the answer? I mean, he created a learning-ready moment. Mm. And I'm now asking him to tell me the answer. I still had a choice to make with what he told me, but it just, I I took it a bit on faith, I guess. Mm. I said, huh, 
I mean, I remember thinking, I don't know if I actually said this or not. I want to be sure I don't romance the story too much. <laughs> but I do remember thinking, could it be that simple? Mm. Like my daddy had raised me to, he, he always said, if it, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not true. And I'm thinking, is that how you really do garner influence and you, and you create impact and doors of opportunity are open? Is that really how it works? Now, maybe somebody told me that as a child or as a teenager, you know, in high school, maybe, maybe, and I just missed it. But in that moment, I thought, huh, okay, let's give this a shot. Mm. And so still trying to figure it out. (laughs) Well, and man, I think that's such a powerful mindset that I'd love to hear you speak on too, is it's like, there are certain people out there that they're the ones oftentimes that we look at and we're like, well, that guy, that gal, they've got it figured out. And almost always those people that we see that way, what I've noticed is they're the ones that are literally the most willing to say, I'm still very much figuring this out. It seems like there's a correlation there of adopting that mindset. Yeah. Well, I would, I would think so. Yeah. If you think you're done, you're done. Mm. You may or may not know, uh, I don't know if you're a history buff or not, uh, Arnold Toynbee did a, a study on the rise and fall of 21 civilizations, groups mm. that were, they flourished, and they're gone. And he wanted to try and figure out, are there patterns? And one of the signs of demise, when you knew they weren't going to make it, is when leaders began to apply yesterday's answers to today's questions. If you think you got it figured out, you're on your way out. Hmm. Okay, this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I'm super interested in this. So I hope you're willing to go down the rabbit trail. I'll go wherever you want to go. Keep your listeners in mind. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we have we have a little bit of evidence to suggest they're down for the rabbit trail as well. So we'll okay. see how this right. goes. Okay. okay, so there's extreme danger in applying yesterday's answers to today's questions. And we hear that and we say, yes, we don't want to become complacent. We don't want to become stagnant. Absolutely. And at the same point, we look at an organization like a Chick-fil-A or even like an Apple or like a Disney or name some other multi-billion dollar brand that we look up to. And we can see examples of when those organizations are winning, they're simultaneously innovating, doing things they've never done before, Uh, taking new ground, applying new answers. But at the same time, it's like they still remain rooted in some sense of tradition and core. And I think that that balance is really hard to strike. And I've never actually thought about it until you presented it. And so just for you, as someone that spent your entire career in the space of culture and leadership development, I'd love to know how you come at that balance and at that topic, Mark. We always attempt to begin with what is universally true. Principles are stubborn things, kind of like facts, right? Mm. I mean, some of the work we've done over the years, I'll give you just a current example. We don't have to chase this, but to illustrate the point, when we decided a few years back that we wanted to try and help leaders around the world strengthen their organizational culture, we began that project like many, many, many others. And we said, what is universally true here? We never looked within our organization because we've actually commissioned the work to get better. So we make an assumption. We do not possess global best practice. We want to search for those so that we can inculcate them, right? And and enjoy the benefits of them. And so we said, what's universally true? Well, on the topic of culture, we ended up surveying, interviewing, or focus grouping over 6,000 folks in 10 countries. Now, for your listeners, they may or may not appreciate that. Like, well, 6,000 people is not many in the scope of the world. Well, the stuff you see on the evening news or on your Facebook feed or Twitter, they typically talk to 400 people, Hmm. which is the minimum to create a statistically valid national sample. So we talk to 6,000 people. So when we talk about culture, I'm pretty confident that that's the kind of thing you can hang on to. Mm. If it's principle-based, universally true, it could change maybe, but I can't imagine it. The work we did on leadership 25 years ago, we're still using it at Chick-fil-A 
That work has been translated into 25 languages, not, not for Chick-fil-A, for leaders around the world. Well, why is that? Well, because it's true and it works. And so mm-hmm. I love the way Jim Collins talks about the question you posed or, or the challenge you posed. He talks about you've got to preserve the core and stimulate progress. You just have to have the discernment and the judgment and the wisdom and the counsel of others to, to be clear on what's core. Because a lot of organizations get in trouble because they they mislabel something as core that shouldn't be. It's, it may actually not be. They are unwilling to change it and ends up costing them dearly in the long term. I'm sure many of those civilizations felt like they were protecting the core but they were protecting something that actually was going to seal their fate. That's so good. And and so in some ways, it's like a, a stubbornness associated with the core is what you're saying. And like a, mm-hmm. a almost a uncommon flexibility and adaptability with everything else. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's a great way to say it. One other piece just from that opening story that I'm really interested in, and I know just the customers that we get to work with every day as well will be fascinated by this, is every time I've ever talked to someone that in any way interacted in person with Truett Cathy, it was a guy that made an impact, is just what I've observed. Like, And people often just allude to the, the impact, his personality, his ability to make decisions, his ability to communicate all of that had on them. It's really neat talking to you because you're, you know, you're now a student of the game of leadership, right? And so you study this stuff, you are in this world. Uh, I know you're fascinated by it. It's, it's your heartbeat, it's your passion. And so I just want to know from you, like as a student of leadership now, we look back and I mean, arguably one of the greatest corporate leaders of the past hundred years, he laid the foundation for what is now a multi-billion dollar organization what are the things that you look back at and you just say, that's the Truett playbook? Like when we think about leadership, that's what was woven into the way he approached it. All right. Well, I don't want to give away too much. And, and I'm really not trying to sell books, but I, 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 I'm not. But I don't, I don't know how much you want to talk about my upcoming book. But it's around five fundamentals of uncommon leadership. The book is called Uncommon Greatness, and the premise is there's only one path to uncommon greatness, and it's uncommon leadership, Mm. and there are five fundamentals, and then the last chapter is about Truett, and he mastered the five fundamentals. I am super down to go as far into all of that. Like, I mean, if, if we like turn this into the audio book, I'm super down to go into all of that. But uh, what, whatever you want to go into. And I mean, man, would you be open to just running through the five fundamentals sure. and, and talking sure. about? Sure. Let, me, let, me set the, let me set the stage real briefly. There are a lot of people chasing greatness and, and I want to mm-hmm. honor those people, but it's not going to be what they think it is. Mm. Common greatness is about the individual. It's mm-hmm. about being recognized. It's about personal excellence. It's, a, it's fleeting. Uncommon greatness is focused on others. It's, it's enduring. It, it's not about the achievement of an individual. It's about eliciting excellence from others. Mm-hmm. It's just a higher standard. And so that's the premise. And so when you describe that for people, and and some of them who've enjoyed a lot of common greatness will admit to you, yet it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be because Mm. it was all about me. Mm. And so so if you can help people see a higher bar, another level of achievement, if you will, then the path to uncommon greatness is uncommon leadership. So there are five fundamentals. I'll hit them really quick. So the five fundamentals. The first is see the future. This is when a leader weaves the threads of what they know to be true with what they want to be true into a compelling picture of the future. Mm. Leadership always begins with a picture of the future. So see the future. And by the way, too many leaders abdicate. And what they, what they do is they're really abdicating their leadership. 
they'll think, well, somebody else will do this. My boss will do this. My boss's boss will do this. My boss's boss's boss, the president, you know, the Pope, somebody, somebody else will do that. Well, sure. All those leaders need to see the future as well. But what's your future? If you're a frontline supervisor, what's your vision for today's shift? What do you want to be true in the next four hours? That's leadership, right? Mm. If you don't have a picture of that, no matter who you are or at what level you're operating, by definition, I would argue you're not leading. You might be managing, but I'm not sure you're doing that. I'm not, I'm not really sure what a lot of people are doing who have a title or position of leadership because you say, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to become? What are your goals? What are your objectives? It's like, uh, d- d- uh, yeah, n- don't have any of that. Like, what are you doing? What keeps people from taking even that step? Because, I mean, the word, you can't go into any leadership conversation and not hear the word vision. But then, like you just said, you walk into a lot of offices today and there's a dramatic lack of vision. What do you think is the blocker or the barrier, Mark? And there are a lot of them. And, and I'm not a psychologist, so I wanna, you know, be careful. I don't overstep my bounds. But I would say sometimes it's fear. Mm. Sometimes it's risk aversion. Those may be cousins in this context. I think here's one that I've been really challenging leaders to get beyond. They may actually have a picture of the future, but they don't know how to get there. And they don't, they don't want to face that. And what I would say is most leaders rarely know how to achieve a bold and aggressive vision. That's what the team gets to figure out. That's what the organization does. When Kennedy, you know, but before your time, President Kennedy said, we're going to put men on the moon, return them safely by the end of the decade. NASA said the technology did not exist. They figured it out. And four months ahead of schedule, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, mm. right? So some leaders, I just, I don't know how to get there. You know, some are overwhelmed by the options because when you think about the future, it hasn't been written. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be written by leaders. Sometimes people just feel like they don't know the right answer. Mm. And, and, you know, vision is where your, your, your knowledge of your organization, the knowledge of the industry, your experience, your wisdom, your creativity, your current, all that stuff collides to create a vision. So some people who don't know the, the preferred future, they haven't done the hard work to figure it out. Mm. So it, there, there are a lot of reasons that, that leaders don't do that. Some don't feel like they've got permission like nah, that, my boss would shoot me if he thought I was, you know, that's his job. That's her job. It's like, yeah. At some level, it is their job. At some level, it, it was Tim Tosopoulos, the president of our company. He had to be thinking a whole lot further out. I mean, that's what really fundamentally changes. I mean, other than the, the, the scope and consequences, but the timeline changes. The shift leader's thinking about get through today. You know, the day manager might be thinking about the monthly P&L. The restaurant operator's thinking about the annual stuff. As you move up in corporate, they're talking about building new locations over the next five years. Tim Tosopoulos is our president. He's maybe thinking about the next 20 years. Andrew, Kathy now is our CEO. He's trying to build a multi-generational family business. See, what happens is it's, it's all see the future. You just got to, you got to put on a different set of lenses depending on where you are in an organization. So first fundamental, see the future. Yeah. One thing that I would just highlight specifically for our audience and what you just said, too, is I love that example that you laid out of an, an organization as robust as Chick-fil-A because it, it clarifies at the different levels where people should be thinking about. And it makes it really clear for me, oh, if I'm a CEO of a 10-person company, what is the detrimental effects of me focusing on just how do we survive today? And that's the only place I spend my time. Well, that means that literally no one is thinking about the conversation of, sure, we can talk 10 years, maybe even one year. And if no one's doing that, well, then you're ultimately never going to be anywhere different than exactly where you are today, which is surviving. And so, yeah, yeah. I always tell leaders, you have to spend enough time in the future to ensure that you have one. <laughs> there and, you go. And, and, and here's the deal. Uh, Peter Drucker, a famous management and leadership thinker of a previous generation. My favorite Drucker quote is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. 
Mm-hmm. And if leaders, if leaders aren't inventing your future, your competition will. They've got a good spot for you at the bottom of the pile. Man, I love it. So good. Uh, the last time we talked, and I think it was actually the first time we talked, it was years ago now. I was in a different job, young guy. I was so stoked to interview you. And uh, you mentioned this guy, Peter Drucker, who I think I had heard of before, but mm-hmm. I hadn't really looked into. And you told this great story about Peter Drucker. I'll never forget it. And it was out of that that I bought the effective executive And we probably quote Peter Drucker on this podcast like every week now. And so you're my person. You're my Peter Drucker person, Mark. And I so appreciate that. So with that, let's jump to fundamental number two. Fundamental two is engage and develop others. This is when leaders help people care deeply about their work, their coworkers, their customers, and the organization while fueling their growth along the way. Engagement is essential. If if we're going to rally people to help us pursue this preferred future. You know, I always tell leaders, if your future picture is so tiny, you can do it without others, then all you need is see the future, right? But I hope that you're dreaming and planning to accomplish something bigger than what you can do yourselves. Well, if, if, you, if it's something bigger than you can do by yourself, you're going to need to engage and develop others. You'll need help to go there. And so, yeah, a lot lot of leaders undervalue or make assumptions about engagement, which is why if you look at Marcus Buckingham's numbers out of ADP or Gallup's numbers, it's somewhere between, in the U.S., engagement is between 15 and 23 percent, which is awful. And I cannot imagine trying to lead anything where seven or eight or nine people out of 10 don't care. I mean, I I cannot even get my head around it. And every year when they publish those numbers, somebody's going to write an article somewhere and it's going to talk about the sorry state of the American workforce. Mm. I have always said that's, that's not right. Those numbers are an indictment on American leadership. Leaders are the ones that are responsible for the engagement of their people. Now, I've had leaders point blank tell me, that's not my job. I said, well, your job is to field a fully engaged team. So if you allow people to stay on your team who are not fully engaged, that's on you, that you let them stay on your team. And it also explains a lot about your performance because people who don't care don't execute, at least not consistently. So engage and develop others. That's the second fundamental. When you're evaluating, like say you walk into a business and we ask you, is this team engaged, Mark? What are you looking for to be able to put a stamp of, yes, they are engaged. I'm seeing these things. Yeah, I think it may, well, for me, it would vary depending on the organization. Mm -hmm. And there might be organizations that I wouldn't have enough information to know. Right. I mean, I might walk into an office building somewhere and I, you know, I don't even know what they do. I might not be able to look at the people and say they're engaged. Now, you put me in a Chick-fil-A restaurant and I've been in a couple of those over the last 45 years. And I'm going to say there's a level of energy. There's eye contact. There's uh, urgency. There's communication. There's cleanliness. The people look sharp. I mean, you just see that stuff and go, okay, these these people care. Remember, we've tried to demystify engagement. There's a lot out there. There's a lot of good stuff out there. But in my opinion, far too much of it is is academic or philosophical. We said, no, what, how do we want to think about engagement? And we, we wrote a book on this called Win the Heart. And we said, we we believe it's how much people care. And leaders can do so many things to help people care more. And that's, that's the leader's role. Yeah. He's in your backyard, I know. So I know you know this name. Andy Stanley always talks about like, man, whenever it comes to ideas like employee engagement, like just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And he, he's kind of famous for popularizing that idea. Is there any one thing that you're like, man, if you would just do this for the one, you have no clue how much of a difference it could make for that individual, but also for the organization? 
I have heard Andy say that, and I think it's a tremendous principle when faced with overwhelming odds, right? Mm. Because you can't serve all the people who are experiencing homelessness and you can't do, I mean, you can't do all. So that makes perfect yes. sense. In an organizational context, I would, I would not apply that principle because you need to do it for all. Mm. You've got to care. You've got to connect. You've got to affirm. You've got to give real responsibility. You've got to create the right uh, context, the right environment. You don't do it for one and wish you could do it for all. You do it for all. Now, as an individual leader, you'll have limits on how much of that you can do, which is what organizational structure is about. Yeah. That's why you have help. Yeah. Systems, processes, but also culture that makes, because obviously Truett wasn't doing that for every person by the time that he, but by the time that he passed away, but he had created a culture where everyone was treated the way that Truett would treat them if he was interacting with them individually. That was the goal. That was the goal. I love it. Okay. Let's jump to fundamental number three, Mark. Reinvent continuously. This is when you routinely escape the present and what is known in pursuit of improved methods, skills, and outcomes. This is what keeps you from getting a rut. This is what prevents you from making the mistake the leaders in these extinct civilizations made. You're reinventing continuously. And I know it sounds a little bit like a buzzword from a consultant, but we, we coined the phrase, again, 25 years ago because we felt like it represented global best practice from the leaders that we admired and felt like were most successful. But to help people get a little, because it's, it's too, like, what does that even mean? We, we share three domains with people just to help you with some hooks. Think about how you can reinvent yourself. What are you learning? How are you growing? And they're all kind of positive consequences if you're learning and growing. We talked to some of, about some of those at the beginning, but those are really outcomes. I'm thinking about you demonstrate humility, you have a teachable spirit, you role model the right behaviors for your team, because you won't have the moral authority to ask them to learn and grow if you're not learning and growing. Mm-hmm. So I'm always asking folks, hey, what, what are you learning? What are, you, what are you focused on? What are you trying to reinvent about you? Second is systems and work processes. If you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you always got or something less. And, and I meet too many leaders that hope things are going to get better. Hope is a good thing, but hope is not a strategy for improvement. And so w- what do you need to change your current beliefs, systems, processes, and behaviors are perfectly aligned with the outcomes you're now receiving. You want the cars to go through the drive through quicker, what are you going to change? You want more sales, what are you going to change? You should always be reinventing something. So self, systems. And the third is structure, which I don't actually believe should be in a constant state of reinvention because that could create chaos. But I think you should hold structure loosely. I find too many leaders that are a prisoner of their structure. Like structure is supposed to enable, not inhibit the work. And if it's really, really hard to get the work or you're making errors or stuff's falling through the cracks, at least one thing you ought to look at is structure. Maybe that would help you solve those problems or seize those opportunities. There's some numbers out there. In fact, Drucker published years and years and years ago that for every 35% in growth, you need a fundamentally different structure. Now, Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't go that far with all due respect to Dr. Drucker. I think that would depend on the industry and the size and the scale. But I think the point that I walk away with is as the business grows, the structure at some point will become outdated. Because it was created to support an enterprise at a certain scope and scale. And so I meet leaders all the time who hadn't changed their structure in 10 years. I just know one thing. Either they haven't grown in 10 years or they have created impediments to future growth. 
Because mm-hmm. that structure can also be the pot that the plant can't grow any bigger because of the pot that it's stuck in. So mm-hmm. that's that's the third way. But those are three ways to think about reinvent continuously. Is there an example that you have that you maybe got to witness structural reinvention go well? And, and could you tell us a little bit of that? Oh, story? yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, yes. Uh, and I'll do it briefly because this was a story about 20 years in the making. It was not a quick success story, and I'll assume full responsibility for that. But the Chick-fil-A restaurant operators are independent business people. I may have already said that. A lot of people know that. They're not corporate employees, and and therefore the employees in their restaurants are not corporate employees. They work for those operators. And we saw a lot of operators, this was, gosh, I don't know how long ago, probably 20 years, 25 years ago, somewhere in that range their businesses began to plateau. And we were trying to figure it out because we didn't think it was market dynamics. You know, we didn't think a market was saturated. And this was not on a random occurrence. I mean, we were seeing this like with, I would say, an alarming frequency. And many of these were were men and women who we would put in a good leader category. These weren't weren't people who were struggling, but sales, profits, customers, we said, this is a problem. So we went out and tried to figure out what's going on. And the conclusion we reached is that many of them had uh, run into something that we called human capacity limits. Like no matter how good you are as a leader, there will come a time when you can't touch everything and make it happen. In fact, let's quote Drucker one more time since we're both fans. He said, most small businesses fail when the business outgrows the leader's opportunity to touch everything, Hmm. which to me is a structure problem, right? So when we saw that these operators, they just didn't have enough what we called leadership capacity based on where the business was going. And then to quote John Maxwell, the leaders are the lid on the enterprise, right? And so all these, we weren't getting the kind of outcomes we'd had. So we introduced an idea We said, hey, what if you consider, because again, these are independent business leaders. We said, what if you consider building a leadership team? Now, this was Mm -hmm. like the most foreign concept in the history of the world, because when the business started and when it was smaller, it was a great leader. And the scope and scale was such that that leader could lead it and they could they could make it happen. And so we said, what if you build a leadership team? And and the way we explain that concept very, very simply is if if your leadership IQ is 180, well, that's fantastic, but you put six leaders around the table and you still get smarter Mm. and you multiply yourself and you create more leadership capacity. And so we began to uh, cast that vision and we began to do work on teams. We spent 20 years working on teams. I ended up writing a book on it, but it, we worked on it for about 20 years, studying the best teams in the world so that we could share those best practices. Again, operators were under no obligation to adopt that as a, as a strategy or as a structure, but the jury is in. Hundreds of millions, billions of dollars would probably go back to the fact that many, many, many of our operators Uh, overcame their challenges with leadership capacity by deputizing some other leaders to help them. Mm. And so that was a structural success. It took us a long time for many, many reasons, not the least of which is this is at the discretion of a bunch of independent business leaders. And we've got over 3,000 restaurants now. But the the fruits have been plentiful, and it's kind of hard to argue. More leadership capacity allows more sales, profits, and customer satisfactions. And we've seen it over and over and over and over again. Mm. Just to make that example really practical for the small business owners listening, I mean, how big are some of the location teams in total that are creating a leadership team in that example that you're giving? Like how many total team members they have? Well, let's go back because we started talking about this. We did a, this was in the mid 90s that we were starting to talk about this. Uh, in fact, we, yeah, there, there's a backstory. We started with the operators trying to help them be teams that, so that they could cascade it into their restaurants. Yeah, I mean, we would have been advocating back then a team of 30, 40 people. You're, you're going to be better if you've got teams, uh, at mm-hmm. least a team trying to help that operator because you don't want the, the leader to have to be there from sunup to sundown. You don't want them to have to be there six days a week. 
Yeah. And today the average restaurant probably has a hundred team members with some of them would have 200, 250, but the leadership team of four to six people is more and more prevalent, uh, more common in Chick-fil-A today than it's ever been. That's so helpful. We walk business owners through what we call the 12 fundamentals of healthy growth. And fundamental number three is establishing a leadership team. And so often people feel hesitant about that because they think like, man, we're not big enough for a leadership team yet. But it just seems like the the structural example that you're giving us is, man, the more you can distribute leadership uh, ability to people so everyone can touch the organization, it sounds like there's incredible positives and benefits that come from that. It just makes yes, sense. And, and not just distributing, but I would tell you the finest moments that these teams experience is when they work together to solve the most pressing and complex problems. I think that's when a team's at its best. The collective wisdom and experience and personality and passion, and you put all that together and say, hey, how do we solve this? Yeah. So it's not just distributing leadership, but it's the power of that collective leadership. Man, so good. Yeah. Our COO uses the the language of brain trust. Like our leadership team is our brain trust that we go to. And what's also, you know, an incredible benefit of that is then you end up with a CEO that no longer feels isolated because they don't feel like they're holding all the information of what's relevant to the organization's future on their own, which is really powerful. Okay. Let's jump to fundamental number four, Mark. The fourth fundamental is to value results and relationships. And this is when you navigate the challenge of honoring the people while ensuring sustained levels of elite performance. Mm. It's both. It's both. It is what Jim Collins talks about, the genius of the and. It's an example of that, where an organization says, let's take two things that appear to be in conflict, and from time to time, they may actually be in conflict, and you embrace them both. Because there's so much power in the tension. So let me give a practical example that many folks would probably uh, may already know is years and years and years ago, Toyota said, we want to create high quality cars at a low price. Well, that was crazy 50 years ago. They got a pretty good track record of amazing quality and relative to what's out there in the world and in the market, they have very reasonably priced cars. They said, we're going to enjoy the the synergistic effect of pursuing both. And so I think that's what you get when you when you pursue results and relationships. And the irony of it, if if you want to maximize results, which you could argue many leaders do because performance is what we're we're paid to generate, right? If you want to maximize results, you focus on relationships. Also, right. Mm. The way to sub-optimize results is to focus exclusively on results. And certainly everybody would know if you focus just on relationships, you're not going to have the results either. So it's Mm -hmm. a bit counterintuitive, a paradox of sorts, that the way you get great results is to focus on results and relationships. You use the phrase elite performance. We are hosting an in-person event coming up in September in Brooklyn, and the theme of the event is a higher standard. And one of the questions that we're going to be addressing in that is, how do you hold people to a high standard in a healthy way? Because I think there's a lot of examples out there of leaders that have a relentlessly high standard. Their attention to detail, their vision of excellence is really high, and their people just don't like them. And they're not, frankly, leading well Uh, in terms of health and in terms of investment in the relationship, it seems much rarer to find someone that still holds on to the high standard, right? But their people also love them. What does that look like? How do you accomplish that? Because that feels like a tightrope to walk as a leader. It is. And let me me just go ahead and say this because somebody out there is thinking it. It's probably really hard to value results in relationships. I would say for about 95% of the leaders in the world, it's the most challenging of the five. Mm. Now, that number I made up, I don't have any real data. I want to be careful because a lot of things I've got real data on, that's just from 40 40 years of leading and 25 years of teaching this content all over the world. Mm. But I think I have figured out why this is so challenging for so many leaders. 
virtually every leader, again, maybe 95%, have a natural bias. They are either more results-oriented or they're more relationship-oriented. There are a few leaders, maybe it's 5%, that for whatever reason, they have an equal measure of both. And I've always said, I don't even like those people because because leadership is easier. Not easy, but it's easier because when they show up, they're thinking about the people and the results. A lot of us aren't. We show up and we're thinking about the results or we're just thinking about the people. And so what we've been encouraging leaders to do for a quarter of a century, it's a two-step process. And I love it because I'm a simple guy. We sell chicken, two steps. Number one, own your bias. And if you don't know your bias, ask three people who know you, they know your bias. Now, there's a chance you could be one of those 5% in the middle. Remember, I don't like you. But step one is own your bias. And then you need step two, compensate. Now, I don't think we're going to change you. And I don't think we're going to change me. And that's not even my goal. Remember, it's about valuing both. So what kind of compensation do I need to bring into play? I often describe it like a leader who wears glasses. I would never say someone who wears glasses is a lesser leader. I'd say they're pretty smart because they found something they didn't do well and they got the corrective lenses to help them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the kind of compensation we're talking about. So if you're more results oriented, then you need to compensate. You've got to decide what's the right prescription. It may be as simple as putting a few relationship oriented people on your team. So they can bring another perspective or vice versa. But you may have to do things that are more elaborate or Mm -hmm. a little more serious kind of stuff. Uh, I've been working on this my whole life, uh, ever ever since I understood this this tension and and my personal bias, uh, I'm, I'm more results oriented. And so one quick story on that, we're building out a new floor at the building. And the architects came to me and they said, hey, we got great news. I said, okay, great news. I've been thinking we're building out this floor. What kind of great news could there be? But tell me, tell me, tell me. And they said, you're going to have the best office in the whole building. I said, keep talking. Because I'm thinking I had not requested the best office in the, and I had helped create the plans. And I didn't remember there being one office that was fundamentally better and different than all the others. And they said, well, we had to modify the plans because of the fire code. And blah, blah, blah. And we've got one corner space with about 50 feet of glass, 14 feet high, around the corner. And the fire marshal won't let us subdivide it. So that's going to be your office. And I said, yeah, show me on the plans. And I looked at it and I saw where it was. And I said, I'm I'm not going to be able to do that. And the guy said some version of this. He said, is this just some of that servant leadership crap? Is that why you won't take this big office? (laughs) And I said, well, actually, no. He said, well, why won't you take the office? He said, this, I think this is better than Truett's office. I said, well, that could be a a career limiting move, but that's not the problem. (laughs) He said, well, why won't you take it? I said, it's right next to the steps and the elevator. And the team is on that 30,000 feet that way. And I said, I know myself well enough to know that my tendency will be to come down the steps or come off the elevator and go into my office and leave to go to a meeting and come back and go. And I said, I'll miss the people. I need my office on the other end of this floor so that I will go through the people multiple times a day. Now, that's back when people went to offices, but you can see what I was trying to do. I was literally trying to physically put my space in a place that would help facilitate me compensating for my lesser focus on the relationships. Mm. So, yeah, I love that because it's like you can't just say, well— Results are my strength, and that means I've just got to, you know, got to delegate my weaknesses. You can't just delegate relationships is what you're saying. You're saying you need to compensate. You need to focus on it. You need to take intentional action. It's okay that it's a weakness. Just actually do things to make up for well, it. Well, and, you know, and let me, let me say, I wouldn't even call it a weakness. I, mm-hmm. I really wouldn't. I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt. When he <laughs> wired me and he wired you, he knew how he was wiring us. And we, we will leverage our strengths. But what we observed a long, long time ago is the best leaders value both. So I'm saying, how do I do that? I'm not really changing me and I'm not calling that a weakness. I'm just putting on that prescription so that I actually can honor the people 
along the way. Man, so good. Is there someone that stands out to you? Maybe it's someone that we would all know, or maybe it's just someone that you know personally that you would say, man, this is someone that I look to or that I've known that like they just hit the balance well. They're doing a great job of playing all out in results and relationships. Yeah, true. It was the best one I ever met Mm. at both. I mean, he cared about the results. He was a businessman. (laughs) I mean, capital B. I mean, and sometimes you might say a hard businessman. And he cared about the people Mm. so much. Now, my belief is, and having spent quite a bit of time with Truett over the decades, I think he was one of those that had both without having to work on it. I, I just don't think, now, not that he wasn't a student of business, and that, but I'm talking about his orientation to care about performance. I think he had that from the day I met him. Now, uh, that'd be 45, 50 years ago I met him, and he cared about people. So he may have been in that small percentage that didn't have to work on it as hard as I do and other leaders. But yeah, he's the best I think I've I've known at both. Is there anything you could share with us? Because I think like if we ask people, do you care about results? They'll be like, yeah, sure, I care about results. Then we say, do you care about people? They'll be like, yeah, sure, I care about people. Is there anything that you have from like your experience with Truett that you're like, no, when I mean, when I say care, this is what I mean when I say care. Like, do you have an example for both? Truett told the story at our annual meeting a long, long time ago of going to the grand opening of one of our restaurants. And and when we were smaller, Truett was showing up at all the grand openings of the restaurants. And a lot of times the restaurants would open on a Thursday or Friday and you're, you're really getting ready for Saturday. And so on Saturday, this was a mall restaurant, the place was just run over with people. And Truett was there and doing what he could do to help and this, that, and the other. And he said, where's the operator? And they said, oh, he went home for his one-year-old daughter's birthday party. And so Truett stood up in front of the whole organization and said, that was not a good decision. He said, a one-year-old could have had a party on Sunday afternoon, and nobody would have known or cared and said, we're trying to grand open this business, which you get to do one time. He said, he should have been in the business. So you can debate whether that's right or wrong. But to me, it said, okay, and and he cares about people as much as any human I've ever met. But I think his logic was pretty good. That one-year-old could have celebrated on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so that was an example when people thought about, I think many people said, okay, he's, he's pretty serious about this. Yeah. People wanted to believe that he would say, oh, well, that's okay. He needs to be home. I thought that's where you were going with that story. I thought you, and then like you kind of pulled a zinger, but it strikes me as though that only works. You can only be the guy if like, okay, you probably need to reschedule your one-year-old's birthday party. That only works if you have like a reputation of really loving people well. And if you don't have that, it feels like that, I mean, that group of people probably abandons you in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even say, there are a lot of people did not agree with Truett on that. And I, yeah. I want to honor those people too. I'm just trying to give you an example. This was 40 years ago but, or whenever, yeah. but people said, okay, he's pretty serious about, we need to make these grand openings really good. Yeah, yeah I love it. But here's what Truett knew is that grand opening was going to have a significant impact on that operator's income for years, potentially. Mm-hmm. Because what you do at grand opening, you could actually calculate what you were going to do beyond that. So we're trying to maximize it And this operator was going to benefit from maximizing grand opening sales. Mm. It was going to help his income month after month, maybe forever, if we got off to a really good start. And so I think Truett had that perspective as well. So powerful. Really good. Okay, let's jump to fundamental number five. Fundamental number five. Before Before I share number five, Our overarching picture of leadership is an iceberg. And we say about 10% is above the waterline and about 90% is below. Mm. The 10% above represents your skills and the 90% below represents your heart. Because if your heart is not right, no one cares about your skills. Mm. The first four fundamentals are above the waterline. The fifth fundamental is embody a leader's heart. 
And if you don't get that right, everything else we've talked about on this show is irrelevant. And I think I can prove that. There are people listening to this show. They know someone who has the skills to lead, but yet they choose not to follow them. And my theory is you've got questions about their heart, questions about their motive, questions about their character. You're not, you're not debating can they cast vision or can they run a meeting or can they build a product, but you've got questions about their heart. So we think leadership is actually both because you probably also know people with a great heart who you would choose not to follow because they have no skills. They couldn't lead themselves out of a room, right? But you have no questions about their heart. So we actually think it's both, which is why we've been using the iceberg now for about 25 years. Hmm. Can you maybe add some color to what is a leader's heart? What does that mean? There are five heart habits. First is hunger for wisdom. Second is expect the best. It's a spirit of optimism. You don't want to follow a pessimistic leader. You accept responsibility. Best leaders don't blame folks. They own stuff. Oh, by the way, they're quick to give praise if things go well, which is a reflection Mm. of their heart. Mm. They respond with courage. Nobody wants to follow a coward. Mm. And virtually everything you do in leadership requires some courage, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit more, maybe a lot. And you can make a list, right? Respond with courage. And then fifth and finally, I would argue the most important of these five is the ability to think others first. Mm. People want to know that their leader really cares. We've, We've already talked about that. We challenge leaders and have been for a long, long time to ask yourself the question, am I a serving leader or a self-serving leader? That one answer makes all the difference in the world. Mm. So in the book, we talk about actually how to cultivate each of those heart habits. So good. Well, just to review the fundamentals, it's it's, uh, see the future, engage and develop others, reinvent continuously, value results in relationships, and then embody a leader's heart. So powerful. We'll say this again at the end, but holy cow, uh, I can't believe I haven't bought the book yet. Like we need to buy the book. uh, Well, you can, but you know, it's not out yet. It comes out February 27th. Yes. You're you're not late. I mean, I'll take a pre-order, but you're not late. (laughs) Well, count me on the pre-order list then. And we'll also include the link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for being so generous and sharing that. And uh, I mean, I've read your other books, Mark, and you've got this unique balance to you in the way that you write and the way that you tell stories. I think it's a lot like what you're teaching right now. You like win my heart with really intentional storytelling, but then you also like give me stuff to do. And and I think it's that combination of both that makes for a really valuable leadership book. Thank you. Well, in the spirit of that, let me share one action item off what we just talked about. We covered a lot in the last hour. I want to go all the way back down to embody a leader's heart. And I want to go to that last heart habit. Think others first. That's not always my first instinct. And I'm guessing there are people listening, if they're honest with themselves, that's not always their first instinct. But I believe you you can cultivate a think others first attitude, outlook, and lifestyle. And so I'm going to give folks an experiment. I'd love you to try this. And I'd ask you to try this for one day. And then maybe you'll try it for two. And then maybe you'll try it for the rest of your life. What would happen if you tried to add value to every person you meet? Now, somebody's listening going, well, that's impossible. I said, hang on, listen, listen to my language here. No, it's impossible to add value to every person you meet but try to add value. See, because if I'm trying to add value to you, who am I thinking about? Thinking about you, Mm -hmm. not thinking about me. And you know, there are a lot of ways you can add value. You can encourage and you can coach and you can challenge and you can resource. If you're a person of faith, you can offer a silent prayer. I mean, there's a long list of ways that you can add value to people. Compliment someone. Ask how somebody's going, how their day's going. I got a a lady at Starbucks I'm checking on every day because her back's hurting and I'm checking on her. Mm. I'm praying for her. So here's here's what happens. If you'll try to add value to every person you meet, it will change you. 
Hmm. It'll change your heart and it'll change your leadership. And if you can figure out how to, how to make these heart habits a part of your lifestyle, you'll become a leader that people want to follow. That's why people wanted to follow Truett. That's why people would want to follow me or you, is if we can do those things, we'll become a leader people want to follow, which gives us an opportunity to practice the other fundamentals. Because if they don't want to follow you, you can't practice the other fundamentals. They don't care about your vision. And on and on and on and on. So good, man. I appreciate the fact that you are visibly passionate about this topic. So, uh, like, you feel like you're about to come out of your seat. And I, I just think that that's such a good thing because I think it models for us, like, what it looks like to engage your heart in something, which is so powerful. But before we get to the final question, I know people are listening to this. They want to buy the book. We're going to put the link in the show notes of this episode. If they want to stay connected with you and everything that you're doing, because I know you've got a lot of cool things that you and your team are working on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, where can they stay connected with you, Mark? So I'm going to give you I'm gonna give you a couple things. And you can put this in the show notes if you think it's appropriate. The first, I'd give you my cell number. It's 678-612-8441. Because some of you are going to have questions and you want to reach out. And if I'm not in a meeting, I'll take your call, but you can always text. It may take me a while to get back to all of you. Last time I did this, I was on a podcast. I think I really didn't count them, but I think we were somewhere between 250 and 350 texts that came in pretty quick. So I will get back to you if you send me a text. So that's option one. Second, I'll give you my email. Now, I've been told that young people don't use email anymore. So... (laughs) Use this at your own risk. If I'll know you're probably not young if you send me an email. It's mark at leadeveryday.com. And then our website is leadeveryday.com. Awesome. Love it. We'll make sure that we put all that stuff in the show notes. Final question to you. You started off the conversation by talking about a pivotal moment that was really you learning that you could learn every day and that every day was an opportunity to grow. What would be your challenge to someone on that topic if they're saying, okay, I'm in, where do I start? Like if I'm in on the grow every day, especially in the arena of leadership, where do I begin? How do I get started? You saved a pretty big question for last. So this is probably an appropriate place for my disclaimer. Uh, Please do not uh, misinterpret the brevity of my response with the magnitude of that question. Hmm. Because I've been trying to answer that question for 40 years, more than almost 45 years. Where do I start? Where do I start? Because you got to ask every day, where do I start today? What do I do today? How do I steward today? You know, what am I going to learn today? Where do you start? I would probably say you need a development plan. I hope that doesn't scare people. It can be really, really simple. Pick a topic or if it's leadership, pick a facet of leadership and say, hey, I want to to learn about vision. Say, great, pick a topic. And then pick a time frame. I would say a year is a really good time to go deep on a topic. You may, you may want to do it in 30 days or six months or whatever. And then you say, okay, what can I read on that topic? Because there's, there's anything you want to know about leadership, somebody's written about it. So what can you read? And not only books, but articles and blogs and, and other stuff. Who can I talk to person to person who I think is good at this? And preferably multiple people. Now, you may say, well, is that a mentor? Well, if you talk to the same person over and over and over for the next year, you might call them your mentor. But if you identify five or six or eight people that you want to buy breakfast, lunch, or dinner for to talk about the topic of vision, I wouldn't necessarily call them mentors in a traditional sense. But you, you, you call them and say, hey, I'd like to learn more about vision. Can I buy your breakfast, lunch, or dinner? And if they say no, you call somebody else and you keep doing that and you find people you can talk to. And here's the deal. They don't have to be miles ahead of you. They got to be a little ahead of you and willing to help you. Now, if you can talk to the world's leading authority on vision, I'm not even sure who that would be. Great. I mean, I have some people who set the bar so high, they don't ever talk to anybody, Mm. right? Like somebody, maybe your high school coach who was always good at getting you inspired, talk to them right? Maybe your pastor, maybe your, your CEO would give you an hour to say, hey, I want to learn about vision, whatever. So read, talk, and then do. 
Start looking for opportunities to practice casting vision. Start small, small circles, small rooms, cast vision for your friends, cast vision for your family, cast visions to yourself about your fitness or your finances. Just start practicing because you'll you'll get better and better and better over time. Uh, put all that in writing, which is why I said a plan. My life coach said there's only one thing that happens when you put stuff in writing. The odds of you doing it goes up drastically. Mm. And then the last piece of that is find somebody to share your plan with. Somebody who cares enough about you to ask you in 30, 60, 90 days, how's it going? How many of those books on vision that you identified have you read? I'm in a group. We've been together now for 26 years studying leadership. We meet twice a month and we just shared our development plans last month. We shared first drafts in November where we're helping give each other feedback about our development plans for the upcoming year. And so those nine guys will will be checking on each other. They'll be asking me, how am I doing? I said, I've, I've identified 48 books on four different, 12 books in four different topics for a month. They're going to say, what, what books did you read this month? Are you on track? Any of those books you want to recommend to me? So that last piece is the accountability piece. It's really accountability, but it's for encouragement as well. Mm. So put together a plan. Love it. I am so grateful for your time, number one, but even beyond that, just your example of, man, clearly never-ending growth and also uh, service towards others. So thanks so much, Mark. Well, they're linked, right? The more Mm. we grow, the more we can serve. Love it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. Well, my goodness, I'm so grateful to Mark for his time, for his energy, and just for his example of like consistently moving forward and never ceasing to keep serving people. As we already mentioned, the book is called Uncommon Greatness. We're going to put the link to that book in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.